folks this morning to be with us. And uh, I don't know who took a, a rowboat to church this morning, but it's uh, coming down. Thank you for being here with us. Let's pray as we get started this morning. Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you. Thank you for bringing us together. I pray that this morning that you would give us ears to hear your word and minds to understand, hearts to believe, and wills to obey. And that that last song would just be, um, would be our heart's cry to you uh, for the rest of our time together. I pray that we would not only be uh, hearers of the word, but doers uh, also of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the familiar metaphors in Scripture for the Bible is the is uh, in the Christian life is is that of a tree. Uh, you know, Psalm one comes to mind where the psalmist describes those who are righteous as trees planted by streams of water. Right, tall, thick, healthy trees, never to be shaken by a, a tropical storm. Uh, you know, this is this is contrasted. Uh, with, with that of the, the flower or grass of the field, that the flowers are beautiful, but they're fleeting, right? One, one day they're here and the next day they're gone. But trees, on the other hand, are enduring. They last a long time. You know, I've always been impressed by the farmer. You know, driving to the beach a couple weeks ago at the youth group uh, on the way out off the 126, we, see, we saw some orchards that had just been planted just, yeah, just, uh, just probably within the last year. And then just a little bit further down the road, you see these old growth orchards that are just gnarled and, and just look decades old. And it'll, it'll take years for those sapling avocados, those baby orange trees to make a profit for the farmer. Right? You won't know the success of that orchard until uh, years later, until the harvest comes. And Jesus, he makes the same point when he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that you can distinguish between people by their fruit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 18 says, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And oftentimes, uh, for work, I've been asked to come in and to try to determine why a tree's leaves might be falling off. And recently I had this happen and I went to go diagnose the problem of the tree and the leaves that were falling off was only the surface issue. It was only the presenting issue, right? The tree had been rotten for years. Moisture and rot and mold had, had taken its effect on the tree, affecting it from the inside out. And so it was so bad that when we went to go remove the tree, the heart wood of the tree that's supposed to be hard was soft like a sponge. It was likely that like maybe a small bug, um, no bigger than a mosquito, was able to bore into that trunk and damage its defenses and start that steady decline of the tree. And Jesus is saying that upon examining trees, there's one surefire way to determine the health of the tree. He says, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. It's, it's the fruit, right, that determines what type of tree it is, right? If there's apples, then it's an apple tree. If it's peaches, then it's a peach tree. And now this imagery that we're going to look at together in Galatians chapter 5, it's, it's a similar to that, but I think it's a little bit more layered. Alongside the metaphor of fruit, Paul uses this, uses this metaphor of walking. If you were in Valerie Moreno's uh, writing class, she would teach you to not mix your metaphors, right? We'll burn that bridge when we get there. Or it's not rocket surgery, 
right? Or we'll burn the midnight oil at both ends, right? But Paul here in this passage, he does this, that. He mixes metaphors. And it's not as bad as the examples I just gave, but uh, he describes the Christian life as walking as well as bearing fruit. And he's contrasting here the two ways to walk. You can walk in the flesh or you can walk in the spirit. And both of those walks produce fruit. They produce something in the lives of those who walk either of those ways. In other words, there's a way that the world walks and then there's a way that the Christian walks. And they are nothing alike. See, you as a believer should look different, right? You sh- there should be something different about you. You should smell different. You should taste different when people pick the fruit down from your life. See, it should taste like love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the things that taste beautiful. And we're going to go through this section of scripture at this point in our life, in our church's life, to remind ourselves in the transition that we, what we need to be absolutely on guard for, right? There's a war that happens for our, and that our hearts must win. There's an inward battle between the flesh and the spirit that we must engage in, we must win. And that's why I've entitled this morning's message, The Battle, right? In a, in a year from now, or five years from now, or a decade from now, when we've moved through life together, the highs and the lows as a church, what's the battle that needs to be won? Well, let's read Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26 together this morning to see what we need to do. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and the things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have also forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. This morning, we're going to examine together the Christian's internal battle, the Christian's internal war that we must win. And it's a little bit difficult to jump in right into Galatians chapter 5 for the next three weeks. So let me give some context for the book and where this passage falls in. Paul here, he's making the argument that the Christian life means liberty. If you go back to Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, this is what it says. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. 
And Paul, he'll continue to use a couple of examples to illustrate uh, the, the, in contrast between slavery and freedom, right? The new way of life or the old way of life, right? He's going to say, are you a children of Sarah or are you children of Hagar? Are you, are you still in Egypt or are you still in Canaan, right? Are you under the law of Moses or are you under the law of Christ, right? Are you sons of promise or are you slaves, And with each of these contrasts, he's trying to prove that you are indeed free. And true freedom doesn't mean that you can just do whatever you want to do, but you are free to worship and serve God who has set you free. You know, and sometimes we as believers, we struggle with our freedom. You know, I've read stories about inmates who have uh, served decades in prison. And when they get out, they don't know what to do with their freedom, right? They desire that structure or the, the familiar nature of what they used to know. And they, and they long to go back to that, right? Christians, we have that same temptation, right? The Israelites, we see it for them. They wanted to go back to Egypt because at least they knew where their next meal was coming from, right? Another temptation is to just be indulgent of your flesh. And Paul wants to show us that in our freedom, there's a war inside that you must win. Yes, we are at peace with Christ, but you need to know and understand that there's a war waging inside of yourself. There's a conflict within you. And this morning, we're going to examine each side of the battle. Okay, look at verse 17 of chapter 5. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, right? The spirit and the flesh are in direct opposition to each other. In verse 16, above, he says, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So if you're taking notes this morning, this will be point number one. We're going to look at the deeds of the flesh. Now, it may sound simple, but it's absolutely critical for the Christian to resist these deeds. You might want to do the deeds of the flesh, right? The deeds of the flesh might look good to you. They might promise life to you. They might seem natural to you, but the Bible says that you should not do them. And this is a very basic part of Christian maturity, but it's amazing how quickly we forget this. He says, you must not satisfy the desires of your flesh. Do not gratify the desires of your flesh. Do not do the things that you want to do, right? So let's think about what is Paul saying here, right? We must not have an appetite for them. We can't gratify them. We can't satiate them. We can't fulfill these desires. And so Paul's inference here is that you're going to feel hungry sometimes, not for food, but hungry for sin, You will have unfulfilled desires in your heart. And what does the world tell us? The world's message is, yeah, do it. Get yours, right? Feel heard. You do you, right? Do whatever feels good to you. It's natural, right? Love is love, right? You deserve to be happy. But even we as born-again believers, we must fight the power over that which still indwells us. This is what the Bible calls the flesh, So you and I, we have desires right now in your life, in my life, desires perhaps for immoral acts, for bitterness, for revenge, for self-pity, for unrighteous anger, for slander, for ill-gotten gain, for ill-gotten power. You have desires in your heart that should not be fulfilled. 
no matter how strongly that you're tempted by them, no matter how good it looks to you or how right they might look or how beautiful they seem to you, no matter how much you think it'll make you happy or you believe that it's just an expression of the real you or that's just a pleasure that you deserve, If, if, if that desire is of the flesh, then the spirit is opposed to it. And you and I shouldn't do the things that we want to do naturally. And so just so we're clear, right? Christians, as a Christian, you are a new person. You're a new creation, right? You have a new heart. You're not a slave to sin anymore. And that means that you're going to have a renewed will so that you don't have to do the works of the flesh any longer, right? The penalty for sin has been taken away. The power of sin has been abolished in your life. And now, as believers, we're being sanctified. So we must fight daily against the power of this indwelling sin. But what does it look like when we walk according to the flesh? Well, in our passage, Paul gives us a list, and we'll move through the list rather quickly. And of course, this isn't an exhaustive list that Paul provides us, but it's a sampling of what flesh-like walking looks like. Okay, we'll start in verse 19. Verse 19 says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Okay, we got to stop there for just a second. This, This means, if it's evident, it means it's obvious, right? It means that it should be clear to the Christian that these attitudes that are to follow or behaviors are not consistent with a life in Christ. It should be obvious that no Christian reading this list would ever give a defense for anything here. As a side note, as, you, as we run through this list, and maybe you know, for, for you, maybe some of them are more obvious than others. And if you're not a believer and you're working this out in your mind, ask yourself, has there ever been a society or a community that has prospered with the pursuit of these deeds of the flesh? Is there a neighborhood anywhere that's better off where more people commit sexual immorality? Is there a community better off where people who are given more and more to drunkenness prosper? Has there ever been a case where drunkenness or dissensions, impurity or divisions led to human flourishing? I don't think so. So these works are the outward expression of the heart's evil desires. And there's 15 of, 15 of them here that Paul mentions. And there's no really agreed upon way to divvy them up. But I think for our purposes this morning, we'll split them up in four ways. They, they, they revolve around sex, religion, society, and indulgence. So let's look at that first category of sex. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 19. Now, these are the deeds of the flesh, and they're evident, and they are immorality, impurity, and sensuality. See, this covers all sexual sins, whether it's public, whether it's private, whether it's outward or inward acts in your own heart. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing how culture changes so quickly and changes for the better a lot of times. And there are things that, uh, that now, in 2023, that carry such a negative stigma that if you were to commit those cultural sins, that you would be lambasted, really. Take, for instance, the civil rights movement. Right? In 2023, we know that racism is not how you get ahead in society. Right? It's obvious. 
But as believers, we, we must have a theological reason why racism is wrong. Though the culture is right on this one, that it is wrong, we, can't just, we cannot follow just what the culture says. And I use that as an illustration because, yes, culture got it right on this part, but culture gets it, culture gets it wrong 99 times out of 100, especially in the area of sexual sin. It has become so normalized for sexual content to be pushed in our face that perhaps you've been desensitized to it. Billboards, commercials, TV shows, movies, Twitter uh, feeds, Instagram reels, just filled with sexual temptation and presented as normal or empowering or liberating. But to the Christian, it's obvious that this is an outworking of an evil heart. And these three words, they cover all sexual misconduct or promiscuity, whether it's acted upon or whether it's just in your thoughts. Paul tells us here that this is the first category of deeds of the flesh, and it's obviously wrong to commit sexual sin. The next category that Paul covers is under religion. Religion. He's talking about whatever garners the worship of your heart. Look at verse 20. He says, idolatry and sorcery. Right? Idols, they can be made of stone or wood or gold or something intangible that's sitting on the throne of your heart. Right? An idol, if you were to define it, is anything that we set our heart upon where we will either commit sin to get it or commit sin if we can't get it. It can be work or school, relationships, possessions, sports. Paul also includes uh, uh, sorcery in this section, sorcery. And you might think sorcery is just this medieval, uh, antiquated, ancient art. But people now who look to energy forces or spirits or tarot cards or the supernatural is all around us. I personally know someone who claims to be a spiritual reader and, and pronounces it as truth that, that she's in tune with Mother Earth and can speak with the dead and can heal your past hurt it, 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 you know, through crystals and meditation. It's, it's, it's sorcery. And though we're, we're technologically advanced as a society we're, and we're headlong into the modern era, these spiritual or cult-like behaviors are not absent from our world. And Paul says it's a deed of the flesh. The third section here, Paul moves to his third category of deeds of the flesh, and they revolve around society and human relationships. Look at, again, in verse 20. He says, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying. Paul kicks off this category with an overarching topic of enmity. Enmity basically means hostility or having such a hardness of heart towards certain people. You know, I do not like bringing up politics at all from the pulpit for fear of being misunderstood and thus alienating someone. And, and so when I bring this up, it's only an observation, an application, maybe an illustration of what enmity is here. Just look at the ongoing conflicts between political parties here in this country. Groups that exhibit such a deep-seated hostility and opposition to, towards each other. And it goes far beyond ideology, right? Groups are characterized not by what they love, but by who they hate. 
Whether you're on the right or on the left, the thing that seems to galvanize these groups is not a core belief. It's just that they can't stand the other group. And, and if you feel like I'm talking about you, whatever side of the aisle that you find yourself on, it is important to not let enmity rule your life. If there's enmity in your life, it is a deed of the flesh. And it's not just politics, right? It can be ethnic relations. It can be family relations. It can be church relations. And enmity is the snowball that starts the avalanche down the mountain, bringing strife and jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, disputes, dissensions, factions, and envying along with it. And that is no way to act as a believer. And remember, right, there's a war that's happening internally. Since we have that sin nature, and at some level, the flesh is warring with the spirit. You might have these internal desires surrounding sex or religion or society. But let's look at this last group having to do with your consumption. Look at verse 20. He says, drunkenness and carousing. We all know what drunkenness is. It's overindulgence. And you have carousing. That might be illustrated by a a frat house or a, a spring break where there seems to be no rules or all your inhibitions are gone. And drunkenness might be one of the least talked about sins in the church. We can think that really it's not a big, it's not a big deal because we see each other every Sunday or every Wednesday. Or we're you know, here at Sunday nights under the oaks or scripture for living. But beneath the surface there might be jobs, lives, marriages ruined by the addiction to alcohol. Maybe someone in this room. And on one hand there is a certain stigma Right? So we don't talk about it. Right? You won't ever tell someone that you're going down that road. But alcoholism or drunkenness is not just some manifestation or medical proclivity or a genetic disposition. Those things might play a factor in it, but it's also a work of the flesh to be fought against by the spirit. And Paul, he could, he could add on to this list of of sins or walking in the deeds of the flesh, but, but he, he gives a warning in verse 21. Let's look at it. Verse 21. He finishes the list with carousing, and then he says, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So apparently, Paul had been in Galatia before, and he said something on this topic already, and he tells them again, and he warns them that these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so, wait a second. Does Paul really mean that if you're angry sometimes, you're going to hell? Does he mean that if I'm envious sometimes, I'm not going to heaven? Right, this is where we need to understand, as believers, the difference between indwelling sin and reigning sin. You have indwelling sin and reigning sin. You say, man, I hate that I was like that with my kids. I hate that I flew off the handle. I hate that I looked at pornography. I hate that I got drunk. Why am I doing this, Lord? That's the spirit fighting against the flesh. See, repentance is a sign that there is a war inside of you. And so when Paul is talking about that person, he's talking about the person who has reigning sin in their lives, not just indwelling sin. If your heart, if your heart 
uh, if sin reigns in your heart, then there will be no fight. There will be no war inside of you, right? Their lives, the people who have reigning sin in their lives, they're, they're marked undeniably by the works of the flesh. And Paul gives a very stern warning here. He says, if you do not have evidence that you are endowed with the spirit of the king, how can you receive the kingdom of the king? If your life is marked by no battling, no repentance, then the spirit of God, according to the word of God, can give you no assurance that you are a child of God. See, the works of the flesh must be fought against with the spirit. And so what's the application here? Well, first, look, look at yourself. Ask yourself, is this me? Does this describe me? And if it's not, praise the Lord by his own grace. And most of you, I hope, will say, you know, I might struggle with some of these temptations, but this is not my day-to-day life. But examine yourself, repent, and then fight. We can fight these deeds of the flesh. We can fight it in two ways. First, we have to have the will to fight. It's not enough to say, yeah, you know what, I do need to be better. But you have to have a plan to fight, a will to fight. We also need to recognize the ugliness of sin. What we're going to study in the second portion of our passage this morning is the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit. There is a beauty in living righteously. There's, there, and we should read these verses and read the, the, the deeds of the flesh, and they should be repulsive to us. Right? We do not want to look like that. And we must fight the ugliness of sin by setting our minds upon the beauty of Christ. So church, look to Christ. He is our reward. He is our life. He is our identity. Look to his grace and anticipate his kingdom day in and day out. After all, it's his own spirit who's within you and who will help you and will keep you to the end. So if that is one side of the inward battle or the internal civil war that's happening, what stands in contrast to the deeds of the flesh? This will be number two in your notes. It's the fruit of the spirit. Think of a ring announcer, right? Introducing two fighters, you know, in the blue corner, ugly as ever, obviously worldly, walking in like an ogre, it's the flesh. And then from the red corner, this undisputed champion, beautiful, righteous, walking in is the spirit. And so what is a Christian who's controlled by the spirit? What do they look like? Let's look at verse 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He doesn't describe a Christian's giftedness or someone who just naturally has this all. Paul doesn't say, you know what, it's the brilliant, it's the wise, it's the articulate who will win the fight. No. He's giving, he's giving what, what seems to be a product description, right? It's the biography sheet of the believer. This is who a believer is, right? You can't make an excuse and say that, hey, I was busy that day and I don't have the fruit that day, right? This is a believer. This is the character of a believer who's walking in the spirit. And remember, we have freedom to walk in the spirit. This is Paul's whole point, right? At the end of verse 23, right? Against such things, there is no law. 
You are not bound by the law to act this way, but we are free to walk in the spirit. Right? There's no law against love. There's no law against gentleness. And that's a euphemism, right? It's the way of saying that when you see something good, you say, hey, there ain't nothing wrong with that. And that's exactly what the fruit of the Spirit is. There is no law against living this way. No one's ever going to complain about you loving or being joyful or peaceful or patient or kind. No one's ever going to call 911 because you're good and faithful or gentle or you have self-control. So the question becomes, how do we end up on the winning side with the Spirit instead of the side marked by the ugliness of sin? How do we get in the right corner? How do we get it where one is decreasing and the other is increasing? Well, the good news is on one level, the spirit is the one who does it for you, right? The spirit is fighting on your behalf. See, God's people will look different and the spirit's doing this in your life. He might be doing it slowly at times. He might be doing it invisibly and no one will ever notice it, but he's doing it. But on this, at the same time he's doing it, we must not make it sound like we are just passive in this fight against the flesh. Right? This has been the tension for Christians all throughout history. Martin Luther uh, struggled with this. Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, they all have struggled with this tension of who's doing the work. Is it me or is it God? I have to trust God that he has promised to grow me into holiness. And this is what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. This is the gradual growth into holiness and conformity to God's will. Sanctification, just much like justification, both, they both require faith. All right, the faith that sanctifies does so differently than the faith that justifies. See, in sanctification, we put forth effort all right, we saw in our study of First Peter, right, that we are to make every effort to practice these things. And you take the, the orchard illustration just a little bit further. You could say that sanctification is the fruit of the tree, but the root of the tree, where that comes from, is justification. Right? Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The faith that we need for sanctification is right on its heels, and as we hold these two doctrines preciously, we cannot, we cannot separate them. We have to hold them together, justification and sanctification. But we have to distinguish between them. And this is important, right? Because the call to salvation is a call to rest. He says, stop working. Lay your burdens down. Repent and believe. Find a good master and find your rest. And sanctification, it calls us to work. Right? God makes an effort. Make, you know, God tells us to make an effort, to show forth an effort in your righteousness that grows out of his legal declaration of being justified. And our text shows us that there is work to be put forward to bear fruit of the spirit of God. And we'll never take credit for it though because it's the grace of God in our lives that produces this work of the spirit. And we do it like Paul says in Philippians, with fear and with trembling as we do it. And you ask, how can I get this fruit in my life then? Well, there's three things that we can do. We can look backwards, we can look to the past, we can look to the present, and then we have things to do to look towards the future. And so first, we need to recall what has happened in the past. 
Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we have to ask the question, when did this happen? When did this crucifixion happen? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 24, Paul says something very similar here, and that something's decisively happened in your past as a Christian when you crucified the flesh. And we know, Jesus talks about in Luke 14, that he tells us to pick up our cross daily and follow after him. And we do that by, by possibly suffering for his name. But most importantly, we do that. We crucify our flesh by turning our backs on our old life of sin. This crucifixion happened decisively at your conversion. I think that's what verse 24 is referring to. It's, it's, he's talking about your conversion. And this happened conclusively when you became a Christian. Not only was Christ working in you, but you, at that moment, you turned to Christ. You decisively crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Remember, at the point of your salvation, you have a sincere repentance in your sin, of your sin, and a renunciation of your old way of life. And this may have happened when you were five years old. You, it might have happened in, in a succession of steps. You might not even remember when it happened. But ask yourself this question. Does this describe my life? Have I crucified the desires of the flesh? Man. It's, it's so cool, cool that, that the Lord even controls the weather. We, we, don't, uh, we don't have to ever worry about that. But when we're looking at, at when we crucified the flesh, you have to ask yourself, am I a Christian? That's the most basic question you have to ask yourself. Am I a Christian? Right? I need to reject the old way of life. I need to reject the old Matt, the one who took pleasure in the deeds of the flesh. Right? I've rejected that person. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. That's why being a Christian is a work of the Spirit. It's not just pulling, up, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just getting rid of a few bad habits. It's a decisive rejection of the man or woman that you used to be. See, the old flesh has been crucified. And so not only are we to recall what has happened in the past, we are to recommit yourself to what uh, must happen in the present. Just look at the text. There are four different verbs describing what we do in, with, and by the Spirit. And they're all getting at the same big idea, but there is some nuance here in the text. Look up at verse uh, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And then in verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit. And then in verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit then keep, in walk, keep walking in the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. Those are all four different verbs. All four expressions speak to how we are to be controlled by the Spirit and under his influence or sway of the Spirit. And again, I think there's some nuance here in the words that Paul uses, right? Just look at example, verse 16, right? That language there of walking in the Spirit's active. Walk by the Spirit. You're doing it. Whereas in verse 18, 
It says, if you are led by the Spirit, right? That suggests something passive. This shows that there's, a, there's an active and passive side to your relationship with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means to be subject to the proddings uh, of the Spirit and the promptings toward sanctification. To be led by the Spirit doesn't mean that I'm going to know everything about the future, about who I should marry and where I should live and what career I should pursue. It's not like God is going to audibly tell me all of those things, but rather it's to be sensitive to his leadings and and, uh, promptings and pressure. You ever feel the pressure of the Spirit upon your life telling you what to do, what, what is right to do and what is wrong to do? That's a passive leading of the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit and by his work upon us when we're actively walking in the Spirit. And there's a contrast here in verse 25 between indicatives. Remember, indicatives are just a statement of fact, right? Statements that indicate something. And the imperatives are what we ought to do or the command that follows. So the indicative, if we live by the Spirit, that's a fact, right? Then here's the command, keep in step with the Spirit in verse 25. To be a Christian is to be made alive by the Spirit of God. And if you're a Christian, you have the life because of the Spirit. Therefore, there's a command, keep in step or keep walking by the Spirit. And the the word walking in verse 25, it's a little bit different than the walking you see in verse 16. They, They roughly mean the same thing, but there's a bit of nuance here. The word here does not means walking with someone side by side or hand in hand, but rather following in the footsteps of someone that's going in front of you. Galatians 5.25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step, walk by the Spirit. Paul is saying, in addition to someone who's really attuned to the subjective nudges and impressions, this person keeps in step with the Spirit. They're following his path walking by his rules. We get this, right? You know, I've taught my kids that when we're at the beach and we're walking up a hill, just step where I step. So you don't slip back. You don't fall backwards. You don't don't go fall in the ocean, right? As believers, this means that we're paying attention to our God-given conscience. It's the spirit who works to convict you of sin. It means that we pay attention to the word of God. It means as, we, as the Spirit speaks to us by the word, we pay attention to what is true and what is right. It means that we pay attention to our relationships also. Right? It's an interesting way that Paul wraps up this section, isn't it? Verse 26 has often been argued that it should be chapter 6, verse 1. But either way, verse 26 is in our passage for this morning. And remember, you think back to the deeds of the the flesh. How many of those deeds of the flesh had to do with human relationships? Well, it's eight out of 15. Eight out of 15 had to do with relationships. And the place in which we are most likely to sin in the body of Christ is in our relationships with other people. And so verse 26 rounds us out. Say, you want to know what it's like to keep in step with the Spirit? You have to pay attention to how you interact with other people, right? That you're not conceited, that you're not needling people, that you're not envying one another. Remember, the way of the Spirit is freedom. This means that there's victory possible because the Spirit becomes a bridle for sin. It holds it back. 
And so let's run through these fruit of the Spirit rather quickly. You have love. Love. It's the foundational attribute that the rest of the fruit of the Spirit are built upon. Right? It's this self-sacrificing passion and devotion for God and others' well-being that truly reflects our understanding of God's own deep love for us. And you have joy. Joy is this deep-seated gladness and contentment in what God has provided for you. This is where you are satisfied in God, not based on circumstances, but rather because you understand his glory. Peace. This is just the unsettled assurance, or I'm sorry, not unsettled, settled. It's important, peace. It's settled assurance that recognizes that being reconciled with God, very God. This peace comes when we're resting in God's promises and his sovereign hand. Then comes patience. Patience means you're forbearing. And and you you express an endurance with people. This is grace. This is a grace that enables believers to persevere in the face of challenges. Recognizing that it is God who's working through difficulties. Then kindness. Kindness is this disposition to treat others generously. With compassion and consideration. And really... Uh, kindness, it's, it's a demonstration of love. It's, it's love in action. Then you have goodness. Goodness is moral excellence, meaning you're virtuous, you're full of integrity. And then faithfulness, this refers to our commitment to God and our relationship with others. It's about being steadfast and reliable in your devotion to God, which results in obedience to him. And then gentleness, this speaks of humility and meekness with our interactions with other people. It means you have strength under control. You're tender-hearted towards people. Self-control. This is the ability to exercise restraint over our desires, over our emotions, over our actions. And we can govern our impulses empowered by the Holy Spirit. So if you could sum them all up, they reflect a transformation of character and the progression in our own sanctification. See, this fruit of the Spirit is so much more than just an add-on or something you you tack on to our lives, but rather it's the essence of our lives. These attributes shape us into individuals who increasingly resemble their Savior. John Calvin says this, God's Spirit so forms the hearts of the godly for holy affections that the flesh and its lusts do not prevail, but rather are subdued and put, as it were, under a yoke. They are checked and restrained. Is that true of your life? Yes, it's hard. Yes, there's a fight. Yes, there is a struggle. Yes, there is a war. But aren't you encouraged that as you go into battle, you know that you will be victorious? We know that the Spirit is there with us when we go out into the ring. And he's going to see it that you have the victory in and through Christ. So we have to look back at what's happened. We must look, recommit ourselves to what's happened in the present, right? namely walking in step with the Spirit. And then finally, believers, we must Uh, recognize and request to be sensitive to the spirit in the future. Right? If you're a believer, you already have the spirit within you. You just need to pray not for more of the spirit, but you need to pray that you would recognize the spirit's work in your life. 
The point is that God wants to give good gifts. And Jesus makes this point by telling a parable in Luke chapter 11. The parable goes like this. There's a man who unexpectedly had company come over to his house. And so he, he goes to his neighbor and asks, he knocks on the door and he's asked for three loaves of bread. And the neighbor said, hey, I'm, I'm already in bed. The lights are turned off. My kids are asleep. Come back later. But the, the man was so persistent with his requests. So the neighbor, just to get rid of him, gave him what he wanted. You know, I have great neighbors, but I'm sure there's a line somewhere that they have limits. But the spiritual point to what Jesus said is your persistence will get you the good gifts. He continues in Luke chapter 11, verse 9 through 13. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead, will he? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What will he give him? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus says, ask me. Listen, your heavenly father loves you. Your heavenly father delights in giving you good gifts. And what's the best gift that God can give you? It's the Holy Spirit. That you'd ask him to use more of the Spirit's power in your life. Ask him to fill this church with the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask him to transform you by the Spirit into the image of Christ himself. Right? You wouldn't give a scorpion when asked for an egg, right? So how can the Father not give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask for the Spirit. He will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And so as we start a new chapter here at Church of the Canyons, let's focus on winning this battle internally in our own lives. Let's be excellent in waging war between the flesh and the spirit in our lives, which we will have, and if we're successful, we will have kingdom impact here in this church, in our community, and beyond. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Father, I pray that together with your son, I pray your, your spirit would be at work in our lives, in our world, in our church, and in our own hearts, that we might know you, that we would become more like you. This is our prayer this morning. Amen.